Hello, hello. I'm Dr. Felicia Mebbin, Executive Director of the Center for Public Health Initiatives at Norfolk State University, and this is Health, Healing, and Hampton Roads. And I am so excited. Super, I know I say this a lot, but I really mean this, okay? I am very excited to have as my guest today, Dr. Mildred Fuller. Hi, Dr. Fuller. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Good, good. Now, I'm super excited because... Dr. Fuller has a lot of history with Norfolk State University and Hampton Rose. This is in a good way, Dr. Fuller. This is what I'm saying. Okay. So she has a lot of experience and training, and so I'm really excited to have her to, to be here to talk about that, um, especially as it relates to health, healing, and Hampton Roads. So, Dr. Fuller, let's start with your academic training. Okay. I came to Norfolk State University in 1987. Woo. I've been here a long time at the university. Um, My background, I have a baccalaureate degree, a Bachelor of Science in Biology. I have certification in Medical Technology, uh, and I have a Master's in Education from Tuskegee University and the doctorate degree in um, health services from Old Dominion University. How did all of that happen? So where where are you from? And... How, how did you get to that first degree? I'm from South Carolina. Uh, my hometown is Sumter, South Carolina. Oh, okay. Uh, and I wanted to go to school in uh, the Carolinas, so I chose North Carolina Central University, and that's where I completed my undergraduate studies. So you mean the Carolina, because I'm from North Carolina, so <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I got my degree in biology, and it was my senior year when the program director from Duke University came over recruiting senior students from North Carolina Central, and she wanted us to look at medical technology. And I said, oh, that sounds really, really interesting. But I didn't attend Duke. I went to Massachusetts, and I completed my studies in medical technology at Cambridge Hospital in Boston. And um, from there, I worked as a practitioner, clinician, uh, at the Brigham Hospital in Boston for many years. And then I decided my husband wanted to move back to Alabama because his grandmother was ill. So we moved back, and I got a job at uh, Tuskegee University teaching in their medical technology program. So that was my introduction to higher education. And from there, I left and went to the University of Maryland at Baltimore in the medical technology program there. And then one day, I got a call about three years later uh, asking me uh, whether I would be interested in directing the medical technology program at Norfolk State University. And I said, okay, I'll come down and take a look. I'm not really looking for a job. Uh, I came down, and I just fell in love with the campus because I thought this was a place that I could excel, uh, move up in higher ed. And my expectations were met. Uh, I've been here over 36 years. Wow. I've really enjoyed being here at Norfolk State and directing the medical technology program. And from there, it just... One level to the next. Uh, I became not only the director of the medical technology program, I became the department chair for Allied Health Programs. 
I stayed in that position um, for 13 years, 17 years, really. Uh, and then I was given the opportunity to be vice provost. Uh, and in that position, I was responsible for all of the curricular types of activities, academic effectiveness, which includes assessment, uh, accreditation, um, types of programs, new programs that we wanted to uh, implement at the university all fell under the vice provost for academic effectiveness. And from there, I stayed, um, what, nine years? And then I came back to the Department of Nursing and Allied Health as a full professor, tenured professor. And then the opportunity came that they wanted me to serve as interim department chair for nursing and allied health. Because when I left, uh, the department was two separate units, but they merged them mm -hmm. and formed the Department of Nursing and Allied Health. Mm -hmm. So I served in that capacity for four years as interim department chair. So now I'm back and doing my full professor position in the Department of Allied, in the program of Allied Health. Mm -hmm. And okay. my other responsibility at the university, which is new, is... Okay, and we're going we're gonna to put a hold uh, on that just for a second. Let me, let me back up and take a deep breath because <laughs> for folks who are listening who are not familiar with academia, this is amazing, okay? <laughs> so again, there are not a lot of women who have this trajectory. That's one thing that I want to say. So thank you so much for being a pioneer in <laughs> higher education leadership. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is especially that I uh, like for younger folks to, to hear is that, you know, career pathways are not always linear. You can't always predict what you're going to do. I hear some really, I hear you taking advantage of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Is that true? That is very true. And don't say no too quickly to opportunities uh, because no one is an expert in everything. Mm -hmm. And don't sell yourself short. You know, the imposter syndrome is something that we encounter a lot. You know, I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't know if I can do that. But, but someone saw something in you, mm -hmm. the reason they are asking you to look at that particular opportunity. Yes, and by the way, she has advised me about that, right? <laughs> Which, you know, you know, we're just going to circle it back around to everybody. Um, because, again, you said somebody called you to come to Norfolk State, mm -hmm. and you took advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, uh, the person who was serving as the program director for medical technology had gotten a fellowship and was going to EVMS, mm -hmm. Old Dominion, biomedical program. And uh, in order for her to take advantage of that opportunity, they needed a program director for the medical technology program. And that's how I got here. Mm -hmm. It's just from that offer. But as I knew her mm -hmm. from being a medical technologist and from going to professional conferences together. Nice. So you had a reputation. She knew what she could, you could do. And so the opportunity came up, which is amazing. And of course, you took advantage of it because you can't, you can't win if you don't play, as they say, right? <laughs> if you don't go for it, you won't have the opportunities. So one thing, too, that I like to think about for folks who are trained in health or public health or allied health or nursing is... From what I'm hearing from your background, you have you have care experience, but then you decided to be in higher education. So what was that thought process like? Um, when I was a practitioner in Boston, working at the Brigham Hospital, 
Um, the opportunity came about because my husband wanted to move back uh, to Alabama. Mm-hmm. So I just searched uh, and looked in my professional journals, and the first <laughs> opening was for a faculty position at Tuskegee. I see. And so I applied, and um, I got the job. Okay, so, that so was again, <laughs> total opportunity. Okay, because academia is very different, right? Right. And I would tell anyone, uh, uh, um, any student, don't rule out education Mm -hmm. as an option. I know when you're going through a health science program, you want to be a practitioner. You want to be a clinician. But don't rule out the education side because Mm -hmm. we have to replenish the persons who are retiring um, with new faculty. Mm-hmm. So it is a golden opportunity, and we really encourage students, you know, our, our blue chippers. We really want them to consider higher ed because it is a, another opportunity for you. Um, right. But I know everyone wants to get their hands in there and practice for a while. That's okay, but don't rule out that opportunity because other people can't do what we do. Right. And, and I think some of it is just not knowing that that's a possibility, right? Some times within uh, minority communities or communities that don't have as many people who have the wide variety of, of jobs, they just don't know, right? Right. So one of the challenges of public health, um, as an assistant dean when I was at UNC Chapel Hill, um, is, which, which, by the way, it's okay if you don't go to Duke, so I'm just saying. But um, when I was at Chapel Hill, is that people don't know what public health is, so they don't know what the job and career opportunities are in public. They don't know what an epidemiologist They may know what an epidemiologist is now <laughs> after mm-hmm, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But you can be a registered dietitian. You can be a biostatistician. You can be a healthcare administrator. You can be someone who, who a doula. You can focus on, you know, mature. There's so many things uh-huh. that you can do that people just don't know about. I think that's part of it as well in terms of higher education and what the opportunities are. And I think the current faculty is part of our responsibility mm-hmm. while the students are here with us to encourage students to look at the education side. Because if you're coming into academia, you know, the three criteria of uh, teaching, effectiveness, scholarship in terms of research, and service mm-hmm. are very important. So we want those people who have the attributes um, that could possibly be successful uh, looking at the education track. So um, I think it's part of our responsibility to mentor and to encourage students to pursue education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, what's the difference between higher education and, I mean, we say higher education, what does that mean? Okay, and it's post-secondary. You want to, it could be a community college. It doesn't necessarily have to be a four-year institution. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many opportunities because when we're looking at health sciences, the community colleges offer health science programs. So there are opportunities, faculty are needed there, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And in our professions, we need uh, faculty to be clinical faculty, um, which the requirements, especially like if you're in nursing, you must have an MSN in order to serve as clinical adjunct faculty. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so we need to encourage uh, students to pursue um, and look at all the options. All the options. So, again, post-secondary is after high school. Right. Right. And 
what I was going to say connected to that as well is in the health professions, we it actually is val- there is actually value to having practitioners to serve in some of these roles because mm-hmm. you want people who are actually on the front lines working and then they bring the lessons that they learn in the moment to the classroom, for example. Um, and so, yes, if you're a practitioner out there and you're very much interested in connecting with higher education, please let us know because there are going to be opportunities. And, and as you were saying, there are levels of opportunity. So you can be an adjunct, you can be an instructor, but then you can also be tenure track faculty, which means you have the research component, et cetera. So there, there are a, a wide variety of opportunities as well. Yeah, the pathways are there. And once you come into the educational setting, you know, you're going to be assigned a mentor. That's one of the things that I will give our Center for Teaching and Learning credit for is that all new faculty members have a mentor in their department and university-wide because sometimes you need a mentor that is not in the unit with you uh, because there's much to be learned about the university from another perspective. Right, right. Awesome. So I stopped you there for a moment, but go back to what you were going to tell us about one of the projects that you're working on now. (laughs) Our new project is establishing a leadership institute for the Division of Academic Affairs. And this is a little different from previous uh, leadership initiatives in that it is limited just to the division of academic affairs. And when we hear the term academic affairs, what does that mean? What does that include? Right. Well, academic affairs uh, is concerned with the teaching and learning processes at the university. So not only does it include faculty, but we have our professional faculty, like you, mm-hmm. um, that, w- that are very essential to helping our students to be successful. So academic affairs includes faculty, but it also includes the student support services that we have, like our Spartan Success Center, um, the uh, testing uh, center, um, the assessment practices that are at the university, our teaching and learning center falls under academic affairs. It's the largest division at the university. So this initiative that we're spearheading is to look at mid-level employees and give them the opportunity to develop their leadership skills and um, when positions become open at the university, these persons will be ready to step in to those positions because retention is very important. Mm -hmm. We talk about student retention, but retention of faculty and staff is very important also. So this is part of the the reason why the provost is undertaking this initiative is so that we can have a succession plan because faculty are getting older. We all are getting older and we need persons to replace us. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is happening across the, around the world actually, <laughs> right? There's because the baby boom generation and before were so big, there are going to be openings coming behind them and we have and and before, but it's also good business practice to mm-hmm. have this kind of, you know, p- have a pathway or pipelines of folks who are prepared and ready and you know to go um, as opportunities come up for whatever reason, actually. Right. right. And and even if you don't move up, 
this opportunity could help strengthen Mm-hmm. your skills doing the job you currently have right you know because you're going to be introduced to the latest trends in higher education so it's also to prepare persons to be better at what they're currently doing but also to move up should the opportunity provide itself nice nice and, and you may get that call you from somewhere know. else you know <laughs> for a higher position um, now that you have these new experiences. Right. It's interesting you say that because some people might think, wait a minute, she's at Norfolk State and she's preparing people to go elsewhere. But I do think it's part of the health and wellness of folks who work in, in any organization mm-hmm. that you work with them as individuals to see what their aspirations are and, you know, help them to prepare. And, and what you're planning for is that as you were saying, you had a great experience at Norfolk State. You're still here after so many years because of that. To me, this is part of that, right? If you treat mm-hmm. people well, they will treat you well back as well. And if sometimes they have other opportunities, then, you know, hopefully you have a good pipeline of people and you uh. can move along. <laughs> you know, so there's sort of an individual care of people mm-hmm. side of this as well as preparing the institution to be ready for people coming and going, I think. And I think a big plus Um, with the persons that are internal is they know the culture Mm -hmm. of the university. So um, they are here because they want to be here. Mm -hmm. So that's a big plus. Right. Um, so you want to do everything you can to keep them here. <laughs> <laughs> it's cheaper. It's cheaper. Well, you know, and like right, you right. said, from a business perspective, uh, it's cheaper to retain the persons you have rather than having to recruit mm-hmm. and go through that whole search process of trying to identify new persons to come. Right. Great. Great stuff. And all of this applies no matter what field you're in, mm-hmm. including health. Okay. So it's related. So, <laughs> so talk a little bit about a health-related project that you've been engaged in? Because I know you've been engaged in a lot. So, <laughs> One of the projects um, that I first um, uh, spearheaded when I came to Norfolk State was the Resource Mothers Program. It's a program for pregnant teens. And because nursing uh, was so key, uh, nursing was the unit that uh, was asked um, to take this funded project and work with the community. So how it worked was that we identified um, women in the community who would serve as resource mothers, and we worked with pregnant teenagers that were still in public school. And in Norfolk, there was a school called um, Coronado. I don't know whether it still exists. Um, But the girls that attended that um, school, we worked closely with them, And what the resource mother's responsibility was, was to try to help this mother adapt and have a healthy baby. So that meant um, prenatal care is very, very important. And helping the young lady to understand that it's not optional, you know? It's not a doll baby that you're dealing with that you can just throw in the corner when Mm -hmm. you get tired. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with a new life that's coming um, into this world. So helping uh, the teen to adapt, because in some homes, uh, the child didn't have that type of support. 
So this was another person mm-hmm. that was available, and that's why they were called resource mm-hmm. mothers, mm-hmm. because this person was very attentive, and oftentimes they would accompany the teenager to their appointments, uh, making sure that everything was ne- that was necessary. They were eating right. Mm-hmm. They were still doing their schoolwork so that they could be successful in school and continuing their lives. So. It was a a very good program, and I'm I'm not sure whether this program still exists in Norfolk since I'm no longer a part of it, but it had been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But nursing was where it first started. Mm -hmm, The nursing program. And I love to hear that because, again, I, I... One of our goals here for the program is to introduce people to the concept of the of public health, and to me, that's just a catch-all in some regards to there's a lot of work going on in our communities, mm-hmm. and it's about preventing issues for these young women um, as well as sharing information. It's about, you know, care is not just about the trip to the doctor, to the right. physician's office. You know, that's one of the key, key points that we want to come back to again and again. And also for me that, you know, Norfolk State does a lot for, for our communities right. that people may not know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was something that was started. It didn't, so they didn't have formal training, right, these resource, resource mothers? No, mm-hmm. no. So, um, but it was a, a very successful program mm-hmm. because we had mm-hmm. it for several years. Right. And so, again, that was an idea that someone at Norfolk State had to support the community and community-based, community, community-based, community-engaged. I mean, these mm-hmm. are themes in our fields right now, and, and we've been doing that for a long time. Right. And, um, and it was such a needed service mm-hmm. uh, because we wanted these young people to still continue their lives, and uh, but still have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. Which is so important. Yes, so important, very, very important. For both of them, actually, because you said the, the, the child, I think, but you meant the mother in this case, yeah, right? Yeah, the because mother. they're teenagers, right? right. So mm-hmm. that, that's amazing. So tell us a little bit about some of the new programs that are in the Department of Nursing and Allied Health. Um. Health fairs we are very engaged in, and one of the areas I'm really interested in is working with Red Cross in terms of blood donations, mm-hmm. um, uh, marrow registry, the do- blood donor um, marrow registry, transplantation, uh, and why blood donations are so, so important for us here in uh, our area, our community, is that we have KD, Children's Hospital, and a lot of those children at KD suffer from sickle cell anemia. Hmm. Sickle cell anemia is a hereditary condition that inflicts African Americans primarily. Um, but when these children are hospitalized, they often need transfusions. And we, knowing the history of blood products, hmm we take into consideration what is a person's blood group. You know, there are four blood groups, A, B, A, B, and O. Um, But when we're talking about African-Americans, the blood group B is most prevalent in Mm African-Americans. So when there is an appeal for blood donors and they are asking for donors that are group B, we should target the African-American community because that blood group is more prevalent in us than in any other group. Mm-hmm. So when these children need platelets and other blood products, we could be a ready resource 
because the directed donations that will come from us could benefit so many of these children. So that's very, very important. So as a medical technologist, we took that very seriously with our students for them to become engaged in the blood donation program uh, because they know the value of this, that not everybody, the most prevalent groups are O and group A, but group B is more prevalent in us. So it's easier to find compatible donors if the African-American community became engaged. And we try to encourage people to realize that you are not going to get infected with something from being a blood donor. Right. Okay? Right. All the safeguards are in place. So, t- so first of all, I'm B positive, so that tracks. Um, <laughs> secondly, so what is the process? Because I've, I've donated blood before, but mm-hmm. I have not donated bone marrow or platelets? I mean, there are other things as well. But what's the process? Where would I go to do this? You can go down to any donation center uh, or go to American Red Cross because they're collecting blood constantly. uh, And there is such a need, and especially during the holidays. And one of the things about blood donations is summertime. Everybody's want, everybody wants to do other things. They want to mm-hmm. go to the beach. They want to go on vacation. No one wants to do um, donations. But that's when it's really, really needed because accidents happen, mm-hmm. surgeries are planned. So we need a supply, the blood supply. We don't want it to get too low. So be a blood donor um, if you can because uh, it's very, very important. It, it is no better uh, service that you can provide other than being um, a blood donor. Nice. And what are some of the other myths? Some of the myths are that I can get HIV infected from being a blood donor. Mm-hmm. But see, all the safeguards are in place. You're going to be screened because we don't want to give blood to someone from someone who is infected with something. Mm -hmm. You know, now we're hearing about the malaria outbreaks in Florida. Okay. If you're going to be a blood donor, that information is very, very important. It's part of the screening. Um, If you've been around persons who have malaria or if it's prevalent in your area, those would be reasons for you to be deferred. Um, So safeguards are in place so that um, you don't, contract anything, and we don't want you to give anyone else anything. But it's a safe process, Mm -hmm. and it takes less than an hour to be a blood donor. Mm -hmm. And we thank you graciously for being a blood donor because it is volunteer. You don't get paid. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why, and that's a safety measure also, because if you're paying people, people will say anything just to get that check, you know. So, but this is all from the heart, altruistic. <laughs> literally from my heart, my blood from my heart, <laughs> but but not literally. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. So, so they're, they're doing it from the goodness of their heart mm-hmm. and for their care for other people uh, is why you serve as a blood donor. Right. Um, transplantation uh, is another big thing. You know, um, organ donations. We should also um, encourage people. You know, sometimes when you go to renew your driver's license at DMV, there may be persons there asking whether you would like to be an organ donor. So Mm -hmm. should something happen to you, you would have to give your permission. Um, And that's something to think about is because it could benefit so many people 
when you're willing to be an organ donor yeah. because a kidney transplant, which is vital, uh, we can take it from a deceased person. A cadaver's kidney will live in. Uh, okay. So just changing our attitudes uh, about um, being or- organ donors, okay, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Just make sure you keep all that information, uh, and you know it will be on your uh, driver's license if you opt to be. Mm-hmm. And then you also, I think the advice too is to talk to your family. If you don't get all the way there <laughs> in terms of driver's license, you can let people in your family know. And I think an, another point about this is don't self-screen yourself. Go through the process, mm-hmm. right? Because they'll let you know, as you right. said, if there's something either way, if it, whatever donation it is or, you know, whether it's transplant or anything, they'll let you know if there's mm-hmm. some limit. And you just never know what benefits you could you could be providing if you at least step into the process. Yeah, so it's, it's very, very important that we do this. Um, one of the other projects we did was the um, Effective Black, Black Parenting Program. It was a SAMHSA grant mm-hmm. that we were um, given, and it was an interdisciplinary team of us that worked on this project um, because we wanted to uh, look at drug abuse in um, our neighborhoods and uh, community. And the neighborhood we chose to do this project was with Young Terrace and, um, mm-hmm. in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. And the Effective Black Parenting Program is just teaching people how to be uh, better parents, uh, which was a very, very good opportunity for all of us that participated because we had persons from social work, psychology, um, the health sciences. We all worked together, and um, it was a very successful program. That sounds great. It also reminds me of... A program that I've been working on with Dina Lattimore, who is mm-hmm. uh, part of my team, with the nursing students. So they are they've been doing public service announcements, and the current group is focusing on tips for parents. So okay, <laughs> very very good. Yes, yes, yes. So it has been wonderful to have you as a guest. I want to thank you for being with us today. Before I close it out officially, is there any closing message that you have, or any shout out you want to give? Um, when you hear about the notices about the sickle cell walk, please get involved because in the African-American community, this is something that we really, really need to be involved, along with the heart walk. These are, these con- Because both conditions affect our community greatly. So getting involved, being educated, we can really help others. Mm -hmm. to live healthier lives. Great. And you guys heard it here from an expert, both in medical care as well as higher education, Dr. Mildred Fuller. Again, thank you so much for being a leader at Norfolk State University as well as in this community. And I also want to thank all of you for listening and joining us today. Again, I am Dr. Felicia Mebbin. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Public Health Initiatives at Norfolk State University. And this is Health Healing and Hampton Roads.